Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. We now rejoin today's message already in progress. Ephesians 4, 8, 9 tells us that it was at the death of Christ that he then took these Old Testament saints who could not have full access to God until he opened up the way. Jesus took them to God. Ephesians 4, he says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, verse 9, what is it but that he had also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? And we believe that Jesus, when he died, went down into Sheol, gathered the Old Testament saints, their spirits, and then ushered them up into the presence of God. So they have been waiting until the perfect sacrifice would be made on the one final day of atonement. And then they were ushered into the presence of God. The Old Testament saints then, who were called, could not inherit their promise until sins were done away. That is what it says at the end of verse 15. They were under the first covenant, but it was only by his death that they were able to inherit the promises. The first covenant could not bring, it could not provide access to God for them. Amen. Now, at the end of verse 15, it says the eternal inheritance. What is that? Well, it certainly has to be salvation. It has to be all that salvation is. And it came to them in the fullest sense. Total access to God. Perfection in the sense that it's used in the book of Hebrews. Perfection came when Jesus died. Let's summarize this verse so you can understand it. There are several steps here. you got to pay close attention. God designed an eternal inheritance, right? The title for it came by promise in verse 15. He promised them eternal inheritance. But the obstacle in their way was sin. The obstacle had to be removed. The old covenant could not remove it. There had to be a new covenant in order to remove the obstacle. So Christ comes providing a new covenant and removes the obstacle. Then the promise is fulfilled to those who believe. That's the simple truth of verse 15. Amen. So he tells his readers that the new covenant was ratified by the death of Christ and provided the full salvation 
that Israel had been waiting for since the very beginning of time. And this introduces to us the subject of the death of Christ. As he goes on, for from now on, through even chapter 10, to get into detail on it, that this has always been a stumbling block to Israel. A dead Messiah never fit their theology. So proceeding from there, verse 16 through 28 now, he gives three great reasons why Jesus had to die. Three great reasons why this death was necessary. Now he already told you that it was that which provided the eternal inheritance and promise to them. Now he goes further yet to bring you these three great reasons why his death was required. Why did it have to be death that got them eternal inheritance? Why not something else? Why did Jesus have to die? Three reasons. Number one, a testament or a covenant demands death if there's a violation. Number two, forgiveness demands blood. Number three, salvation demands a victim. And that can be stated in several ways. Judgment demands a substitute might be better. Let's put it that way. Judgment demands a substitute. First of all, a testament. A testament, a covenant, demands death. And now by the word testament, we're referring, or the, the Greek is referring to a will. Let's look at it. The Greek word we studied last time was diaphasi. It comes into play again, and we studied it some last week, but look again at verse 16. For where a testament, or where a diaphesi is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. If there's going to be a will, the guy who makes the will has got to be dead, or the will is not in force. It's not any good. You don't get the proceeds from the will until the guy dies. Okay, that's the simple point being made here. Verse 17 takes it a step further. For a testament is in force only after men are dead. Otherwise, it's of no strength at all while the testator lives. As long as the guy's alive, you cannot collect on the will. That's the simple point. God made a legacy to Israel. God made a legacy to all men. And the legacy was eternal inheritance. But you cannot receive the legacy of God in the inheritance until the one who gave the legacy dies. Amen. The word testament here, a little review, again, is diaphasi. The common Greek word for a covenant was sonphasi, which means an agreement between two equal partners. Dia, to, fisi, covenant, diaphasi means somebody makes the rules up here and you either take it or leave it. Amen. That's the... the uh, that's the word that is always used with God's covenants because he always calls all the shots. And you either take it or leave it. You don't bargain with God. We studied that last time. You don't say, well, God, if you'll just adjust your attitude a little bit here and I'll just mine, we'll kind of meet halfway. No, God's truth is absolute. The best way to illustrate the use of the word diaphasi is the fact that it's used to speak of a will, a testament. A will is not a bargain between two people. A will is something made by one person, and the other person either takes it or leaves it. Amen. I'm going to let that go, because we studied that in depth last time. 
So God's saying here, God has promised an inheritance to man. That inheritance depends upon the death of the one who made it in order to be received. That's the simple truth here. That's really all he is saying. A will cannot operate in force until the one who made the will dies. Therefore, Jesus had to die. He had to die to release the, re the, the legacy of God to men. The kingdom of heaven is basically bequeathed to all believers. Glory to God. Such is God's will and testament. And Jesus' death released it to our possession. Some of it is ours now. And it will be ours in the fullness when we go to be with him. So the first reason for death then is simply that a testament demands death. The second reason for the death of Christ is forgiveness requires blood or demands blood. Forgiveness demands blood. This is directly in line with the previous point. Just a little different shade of meaning, however. We see the word again, covenant, used in the terms of a covenant, not so much a will. The will idea exists in verse 16 and 17. Now the writer shifts a gear a little bit in verse 18. Let's read it. Whereupon neither the first was dedicated without blood. The word testament's in italics in the King James. It doesn't need to be there. It was added at the discretion of the translators. So probably covenant would be a better translation. If you're going to stick something in there, put covenant in to make a distinction between a covenant and a will in, in verse 16 and 17. So, whereupon then neither the first covenant was dedicated without blood. In other words, there's got to be the death of somebody because it has always been that covenants are ratified by blood. That's the point. Blood was a part of the dedication or the ratification of covenants. Even the old covenant. The first was not dedicated without blood. That's a double negative way of saying the first one was dedicated with blood. In the case of the old covenant, the death of animals. Typical and prophetic, looking forward to the death of Christ, which will ratify the second covenant. So, you see, blood will be required for the second covenant as well. So in both of these aspects, Christ needed to die. He needs to die, first of all, to release his will to go into force. He needs to die, secondly, because covenants are always ratified, we could say made secure, by the death and the bloodshed of some individual. Now here's a beautiful thought. Grab hold of this. It just kind of struck me. If you've got the death of somebody releasing something in verse 16 and 17, and you've got the death of something ratifying, the death of someone ratifying the covenant in verse 18, you can take it a step further than that, and you still got somebody who is a living mediator of a covenant. That means you now got a resurrection. Amen. Hallelujah. So you put those things all together, they have to allow for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had to die to release his will. He had to live to make it operate. He had to die to ratify the covenant. He had to live to keep the terms of it. So the resurrection is implied in all of it. Amen. Glory to God. See, even I learned something today. Amen. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Glory. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. 
So, for the first covenant, he says in verse 18, was ratified by blood. What's so shocking about the second one being ratified in the same way? Look at verse 19. Here he digs it up in the Old Covenant. We'll look at it for a minute. It's very, very interesting. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood. You see that? Now, the law came clear back in the book of Exodus. When Moses got done firing the whole thing out to everybody and unloading every bit of it on them, he took the blood of calves, goats, and some water and some scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the New Testament, or the New Covenant, which God has now joined unto you. Now Moses, he goes back and says, Look at your great Moses. When the first covenant came, it was the whole thing with blood. Now let me take you back to Exodus chapter 19 for a minute. Let's look at it in verse 5. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine. You shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now that's great. Verse 8. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken to us we will do. Did they do it? No. And Moses returned the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord, the Lord probably said, yeah, right. And then it went on from there. God gave them the various characteristics in the covenant. Chapter 20, you're very familiar with. God spoke and said, here's what I want you to start out with, Moses. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto you any carved image or any likeness of anything in the heaven above, in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. Verse 5. You shall not bow yourself down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, etc., etc., etc. He goes on down and gives what we commonly know as the Ten Commandments. That's only the beginning of the Mosaic Covenant. In chapter 20, verse 24, he gives them a little further grace provision. He, because he knows they're not going to make it. He says, when you sin... Make an altar of earth, you shall make unto me, and you'll sh you shall sacrifice thereon your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep, your oxen, in all places where I record my name, and I will come unto you and bless you. And if you will make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stone. For if you lift up your tool upon it, you'll pollute it. Neither shall you go up upon your steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed thereon. In other words, you don't want to get going up there so people can see up your backside or whatever you got wearing. It's a very sacred place. And he didn't even want carved stone there. It had to be sacred because a place where they could atone for their sin. And he goes on from there in chapter 21, gives them all kind of details. Uh, all the rules applying to slaves in verses 1 through 11. Verse 12 to 36, uh, all the rules applying to personal injury. What happens when two men fight each other and something happens to the other guy? What happens when you hurt somebody else's ox? All of that. Uh, verse 22 talks about theft. What do you do about that? Chapter 22, verse 5 and 6 talks about property damage. And then there's a rule about dishonesty through verse 15 and immorality in 16, 17, 19. Uh, there's some civil and religious so forth obligations, closing out 22, opening up chapter 23, and then ceremonial rules. 
Uh, he gives them some rules about people that they conquer at the end of chapter 23. So all those are the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. There's a lot of stuff in there. And Moses evidently had read it all to everybody. Now, covenants historically had always been ratified by blood. That's the tradition that God established, and that's what they believed in. Remember that in Genesis, that's what happened. When God gave Abraham the covenant, God knocked him out, basically, with a divine anesthetic after he had slaughtered those animals, cut them in half, laid the bloody pieces on two sides, took a turtle dove and killed it, and the other side, I think it was a pigeon. Anyway, and then God passed between the bloody pieces. In other words, even the Abrahamic covenant was sealed by blood. So this is what happened in the Mosaic case. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Now we come, verse 1 of chapter 24, see what happens. After he's given all of this, and he's read it, he said, Now Moses, come up unto the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abu, 70 of the elders of Israel, but worship afar off. Notice it's always far off. Never any access to God under the Old Covenant. It's always far off. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near. Neither shall the people go up with him. You see, only the high priest, and Moses here is acting as the high priest at this point. Moses came and told all the people, all the words of the Lord, all the ordinances. All the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. They start off with great intentions. Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and then rose up early in the morning. That must have been a long night. Amen. There were a lot of words there. Most people today don't even want to read what he wrote in one sitting, let alone write it all out by hand all in one night. Amen. Then he built an altar under the hill and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Sent two men out, except six. All right, come down to verse six, uh, verse five. And he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. He took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, "All the Lord has said, we will do, and we will be obedient." Moses took the blood, the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, "Behold, the blood covenant." which the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. So you see there, the whole thing was ratified by blood. That is God's standard. That's what he requires. Now let's go back to Hebrews chapter 9. And, and you understand what it means in verse 19 now. It says, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats, water, scarlet, wool, uh, hyssop and sprinkled the book and all the people. That was Moses' act of ratifying the covenant with God. And incidentally, it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews adds for us certain details that are not included in Exodus 24. For example, he adds goats. There aren't any goats in Exodus 24. Maybe they were a special type of sin offering. I don't know. He also adds water there. Water was not in Exodus 24 either, but it was used in Leviticus chapter 14, verse 6, and in Numbers 19 to mix with blood, probably in order to prevent it from, from coagulating, likely, uh, so that when it was sprinkled, the mixture of water thinned it out a little bit, making it easier to sprinkle. He also mentions scarlet wool and hyssop. They were also used in Leviticus 14 to sprinkle. They were dipped in the blood and then 
that was used to sprinkle things. And then he indicates, too, that at the end of verse 19, that he sprinkled not only the book, but all the people. In Exodus 24, it says he sprinkled the altar and the people. So he sprinkled the altar, the book, and the people. Amen. A lot of blood going on there. I don't think we, in this day and time, can really understand how bloody and how messy this whole thing really was. Sometimes I imagine what it would have been like, you know, in these feast days with all of these sacrifices going on and the stench and, and the blood and, and the carcasses and everything. It was really messy. Messy, messy, messy. There's blood everywhere. And that was God by sign and symbol. Always showing the wages of sin was what? Death. Constantly. There's no sense of getting teary-eyed and mystical about blood. You know, you sing hymns, there's power in the blood, all that. We, we don't want to get preoccupied with the blood. The only importance the blood of Jesus has is that it showed he died. There's no saving fact in the blood itself. We cannot say that the very blood of Jesus, his physical blood, is what atones for sin. It's his death that atones for sin. His bloodshed was an act of death. So don't become so preoccupied with fantasizing about some mystical blood that's out floating around somewhere. It's not. It's by the sacrificial offering of himself, that is by his death, that we are redeemed. Bloodshed is only the picture of his death. And so always in the ratification of a covenant, blood was shed. Because in every covenant that God made with man, he knew there would be a violation, right? And that violation is sin. And that sin could only be taken care of by death. Therefore, initially, God showed the importance of the sacrificial system by making that initial ratification of a covenant. So when Jesus died and shed his blood, that's no big thing. That's nothing for Israel to all get all bent out of shape about. This ought to be a good proof that God was instituting a new covenant with them. And it had to be ratified by blood, which they could relate to. Back in Leviticus 17, listen to this. This far back, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. There's nothing else that can atone for sin but bloodshed. Brother Bob, you said blood doesn't atone for soul that Jesus' death did. The blood is symbolic of his death. That was the proof of his death. You cannot enter into God's presence by being good. You can't do it. You cannot enter into God's presence by being a fine person. You can't do it. You cannot enter into God's presence by going through religious rituals. You can't do it. You cannot enter into God's presence by reading the Bible every day, by going to church, by being a member of church, or thinking sweet thoughts about God. The only way you're ever going to get into God's presence and in participation in the new covenant is by one thing, the death of Jesus Christ. And your faith and your belief in his shed blood on the cross for you personally. That's the only way. That's the only access. Jesus said, I am the way. God set the rules. The soul that sins shall die. Then God, in grace, moved right back in and provided a death substitute. 
Jesus' death is the only thing that satisfies God. Every other death of animals and bulls and goats and all that up to that time was, as we explained before, God was using it to say your salvation is secure on credit if you believe. And then in the death of Jesus, that bill was paid off. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Because he requires death to pay for sin. And all over the Old Testament, he splattered blood in order they might be constantly made aware of the fact that bloodshed was the only payment for our sin. Forgiveness is very costly. I often think to myself how lightly I take the forgiveness of God. Sometimes I come to the end of the day and I lay down on the pillow, get ready to go to bed, and I think, God, we did this today, that today, the other thing today. And I usually try to recite things that I know He, I know He already knows about it. And I'm sure He knows about every one of them. Amen? And then I recite things that I didn't think were pleasing to Him. I say, thank you for forgiving me. And then I go to sleep in just a couple minutes. Then, you know, I, I begin to think sometimes as I study the Word of God for the cost it took to purchase my forgiveness. That how cheaply sometimes we consider it. The, the infinite cost that God went to in order to forgive our sins. And we are all so ready to sin. In the background, it's in our nature. And sometimes we do it knowing that we're already forgiven. That's an abuse of what God has given his grace to us for. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 6 faces the question, Shall we sin so that grace may abound? And he throws his hands up in the air and says, God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? Would we stop all over God's grace? Consider the cost of your forgiveness, folks. God is such a bound God, bound to his own character, he cannot break the moral laws of his nature. He cannot violate the moral laws of this universe that he established. He built it into the universe. The fact that sin demands death. And finally, since he made everything, he's the God of all things, he decided that he's the one that would have to pay the price. And he paid it. Glory to God. Amen. Forgiveness is not just God looking down and saying, oh, it's okay, I like you a lot, I'll just let it slide. No. Sin is the costliest thing in the universe. And without bloodshed, there's no forgiveness of sin. If you are forgiven, it's because somebody died. And that somebody is Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God. 
the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.